The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle, from the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback. There's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. What's up, fam? This is Jay from Push Black. Now, it's no secret that the economic system is rigged against us, but we have more power than you might think. Push Black's new podcast, Building Black Dollars, explores the daily issues Black folks face financially and the actions we can take right now to solve those problems. So if you're trying to get your money right, tune in to Building Black Dollars by Push Black. Catch it anywhere you listen to podcasts. Now, contrary to the mainstream's twisted portrait of black life, living while black isn't all that bad. I love it. Matter of fact, we have an abundance of life to celebrate. Just look at our holidays and traditions that honor where we came from, who we are, and where we're going. I'm Jay from Push Black, and you're listening to Black History Year. When we named this podcast, we understood that no box could contain all that is us. Even when chained, our ancestors rebelled. Slapped in the face with black codes, you could find our people defying laws meant to control us. And yet, through even more violence and white terrorism, black folks celebrated in the midst of it all. In our holidays, traditions, and even everyday customs, we're commemorating our blackness. But you might not know the roots. So with Juneteenth right around the corner, we're gonna sit down with someone who's well-versed in those traditions we've kept with us over generations. Dr. Keith Mays is an associate professor in the Department of African-American and African Studies at the University of Minnesota with the specialty in black history, social and political movements, race and perception, and of course, black holidays. He's gonna help us dig in to what and why we celebrate. All right, we're gonna get to Keith in a minute because first, I wanna share a story with y'all. It's about a black tradition that comes in the form of a brown paper bag. The young girl sat eagerly with her hands tucked into her lap. With her knee bouncing, 
She looked to the clock and counted down the seconds until Sunday school ended. Her teacher, an elder who'd been at the church for at least 40 years, closed the good book, led the children in prayer, then told them to line into a single file. And they didn't dare question her authority. Moments later, the elder brought out a box full of what they'd been waiting for. One by one, they were handed brown paper bags with festive goodies inside. Now all they wanted to do was rip the bags open, but none of them dared. The risk of a mother's wrath wasn't worth it, especially around the holiday. But the young girl couldn't wait. She had to open it, and when she did, there sat the traditional treats she'd come to love an apple, an orange, a few walnuts, and a candy cane. This was the Christmas treat bag families receive every year at her church. During Christmas, this tradition of giving was born of a need for community, and it's been a staple in countless Black households since. But there are many more Black traditions and holidays that you may or may not know, such as Emancipation Day and Black Love Day. And of course, there's Kwanzaa. These holidays and others were created by Black freedom fighters who recognized our invisibility in mainstream holidays. They decided to do something about it. From there, a new calendar, one that today's guest has coined the Black protest calendar, emerged. Unlike the mainstream one, ours is filled with the holidays we created that uplift such principles as love, resilience, and community in celebration of our people. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Keith, what does Black liberation mean to you? It's a really, really heavy question. Uh, uh, black liberation for me personally means um, that you know, African-American people, African people are able to live in a society um, and actualize and manifest the things that they think are most important to them. So whether that's um, you know, economic growth, material wealth, political power, uh, they should exercise that uh, without any impediments. Uh, issues around you know, personal well-being, that also means having wholesome families and being able to participate in, in the larger society as Black folks and show up as who they are without any constraints on, on their identities and, and who they may be in terms of their larger full selves as individuals within a, in a community or as a, as a group. So liberation can mean many different things, but liberation for the group means those things that we've been fighting for for all of these years. Uh, social rights, political rights, generation wealth building, uh, being able to create a future and a vision for our children, 
but individual liberation can mean something very specific to each and every person. Appreciate you sharing that. So how does your work get community closer towards that vision of liberation? Um, I, I see myself primarily as a, as a teacher. Um, I am a professor of African-American and African studies, and it's something that I've been doing for close to 20 years now. I was born and raised in New York City, and specifically Harlem. And then, you know, coming from a pre-gentrification Harlem, uh, coming from an environment like that meant that I wanted to always give back and make a difference in that community. And for a long time, uh, I didn't know what that was or what that could look like. Uh, I do come up in the generation, the first generation of rap and hip hop. You know, I, I rapped, I DJed, I graffiti, break dance, and I was part of that. And I thought that that's, that was the way I would give back personally that I would contribute contribute to a liberation project via the arts in that way, because that's, that's what I was immersed in. But then as I got older, I realized that one of the things that transformed me as a young Black man in the neighborhood was that I fell in love with Black history. So, so yeah, when I ran into Black history books, I would just see them on 125th Street on the table being sold and uh, uh, black bookstores, and I fell in love with what it meant to sort of be a reader and to be a thinker. And then I began to translate that into wanting to teach because I, the people who I began to look up to in my early 20s were black professors, black teachers. So I was influenced by the Afrocentric movement, and my teachers were John Henry Clark and uh, Dr. Ben and Dr. Jeffries at, at City College CUNY. And I wanted to be them, James Small. I wanted to be like them. And I began to translate my personal experience as a Black male youth into envisioning myself as a future teacher. So I became that. And I really believe that in many ways, I'm not an activist, but I think that teaching, and especially teaching Black history, is a form of activism. Uh, and you know, I still carry the, an activist aesthetic. My passion is teaching Black students and teaching them our history. And so uh, to answer your question, uh, I think that I contribute to a Black liberation project through the art of, of teaching. And teaching is something that's central to our community. It's been so for, for hundreds of years. I'd like to take a moment to dig a little deeper into your upbringing. You mentioned coming up in Harlem. Can you describe for our audience more of that uh, that environment? It's a unique type of environment, from what I understand, as it comes to our history and for you know folks on the streets just speaking and debating about um, about issues in the community. Are you able to speak to the environment up there and around the time you were coming up? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's a very, it was a very literate environment. You know, we always get cast as people who don't like to study and read and. You know, we're not an intellectual class of people, but that's all I saw in Harlem walking the streets with the book vendors on every single corner it seemed and black bookstores, you know, in and in parts of the city. And certainly you as you mentioned, we had a lot of street speakers, uh some uh commissioned to speak for one reason or another, or those who just wanted to, you know, stand on the corner and 
and be prophetic in many ways about the black experience. And so you kind of walking around immersed in all of that and not even realizing that it's having an impact on you. And, and when I look back on it now, you know, that was my environment. That was my upbringing. You know, I had the Schaumburg Center down the street from uh, where I lived. And yeah, and at the city college, there was always a, a connection between the campus and the community and folks who you would see in a campus classroom teaching. You know, you would find them at a community event speaking as well. So that envi- environment empowered me in a way to to say and to suggest that, you know, I could be somebody who studies and learns. And it wasn't clear that I wanted to teach right away, but I think being around books and falling in love with reading. And what I mean, when I say falling in love, I mean, like falling deeply in love with it, right? Walking around Harlem with a knapsack full of book, black books. And in many ways, I still do, right? Just that transformation for me as a as an 18, 19, 20-year-old. So yes, it's still something that's a feature of Black communities across the country. It's, it's great to hear that because, you know, I think a lot of what we get, especially those of us who have uh, not spent significant time up in that area, you hear the story of people coming out of Harlem and looking up to uh, the drug dealers, right? Mm-hmm. But not looking up to the scholars and the folks, you know, selling books and libraries. So it's a very interesting perspective that you that you have. Also, briefly, before we move on, you mentioned coming up under Dr. Clark, Dr. Ben, um, James Smalls. Do you have any stories that come to mind that stand out to you in terms of your uh, experience or interaction um, as you're coming up under them? Yeah, we, we would have, um, you know, these lectures. And, and I was just talking to somebody recently, and I was like, you know, I, I miss the ways in which they used to organize us as young students. Yes, we took their classes and, and that was great, but they would have groups like um, the Sons of Africa on campus. And it was just mainly in the Daughters of Africa, mainly a bunch of young Black uh, men and women who wanted to be socialized in a certain way because they, we took life seriously. We took the things that were happening in our community seriously. We took learning seriously. And we thought that you know, going back to your first question, that learning was the key to liberation. And it was our responsibility to teach others who may not have been uh, similarly situated in their in their learning, in their consciousness. And it was our job. So they wanted to kind of create and replicate a learning environment and a learning community of young people that can go off into other areas to to uh, promote Black liberation, however they saw fit to do so. I mean, all of all of us didn't become teachers, but, you know, it was what was important is that you wanted to raise our consciousness so that when we you know, did go out in the world, we had something to contribute to uh, Black advancement. So, so, yeah, James Small was really good. Actually, it's funny because every time that I really feel, um, not, I'm not really feeling good about the world because of the things that happened to us in the world as Black people, I actually go back and and I, and I go uh, online to listen to James Small. James Small still gives a lot of lectures and so I re- I use those guys to recenter myself and to get back right and to understand that the struggle is long standing and in many ways you know it, it was their job to pass it off to us and and I'm getting older and it's my job to pass it off to the next generation and we just got to continue struggling. 
you mentioned that you had these groups that you um, were around or part of that were interested in being socialized in a certain way. And I, I hear this intentional effort to pass on culture and to connect with each other in in certain ways so they're not getting elsewhere. And um, it seems that that's connected in some regard to the work that you've done around Black holidays and traditions, I think specifically Kwanzaa. And, you know, what led to that work and what you, um, the things that you've uncovered there? You know, that's interesting because I, after I, I wrote the book, I reflect on why I chose Kwanzaa as an area of study. Uh, I couldn't find the reasons why immediately then I realized, like, listen, the reason why you chose that is because of your upbringing. So I used to, so I didn't celebrate Kwanzaa growing up in a family. But what I, what I did do was to go to a lot of Kwanzaa's in the neighborhood. And I went to Kwanzaa's because of the Afrocentric movement and because of Black nationalism and being around all those men and women who were in movements, who were in the organizations, and they had public Kwanzaa's. And so I used to go, I went. So I chose Kwanzaa as a dissertation topic when I went to Princeton, which is only 70 miles from New York City. So when I would go back, I'm going back, I'm leaving you know, a PWI like Princeton, going back home to Harlem. And, and I realized that I'm carrying back and forth or from Harlem to Princeton, my Black self. So my, the, the desire to study certain things and to explore certain subjects had everything to do with Harlem. And so when I <laughs> proposed uh, Kwanzaa as a subject for a dissertation topic, I settled on Black historical memory. And so I come in with Kwanzaa as a, as a manifestation of Black historical memory. So what, how do Black people organize and think about the past? And this Kwanzaa, a topic is fascinating because it's part of the cultural nationalist movement. It's part of Black nationalism, a subset of Black nationalism, cultural nationalism. A lot of people have not written about these folks. Actually, it was nothing on Kwanzaa, uh, nothing academically. Folks were a lot really checking for it because they thought that there was something too radical about that side, the Black power subfield. And that that began my my journey to really take Kwanzaa up as a subject just to interrogate what those Black cultural nationalists were doing. And what they were doing was critiquing the whiteness of the American calendar and saying that we don't have enough Black days on them. And although there were days that were associated with Black historical moments, like Juneteenth, um, it was different from for these cultural nationalists like Maulana Karenga because he said, well, we'll create a day and put it right next to a dominant white holiday. And, and, and we're not doing that because we, we want to stop Black folks from celebrating that dominant holiday, Christmas or Thanksgiving or Easter. But we do want Black people to begin to reflect on what that holiday means for them, even if they do celebrate it. And is there a way to create a new ritual path for the Black community that makes more sense. And, and our holidays, although I love them, you know, I've got a whole bunch of stuff to do on Juneteenth because I've become kind of the holiday man. And I love Black holidays, but I think they are also very limited. And so I just love that about 
these ho- these black holiday makers of the 1960s because they were very intentional about creating a black calling in the book a black protest calendar which was to say that uh it was one thing to to have black people embrace you know valentine's day and all these dominant uh, holidays but it's another thing to create these alternative moments on the calendar that would allow black people to think about their existence in a different kind of way. That's interesting, that intention that you described, viewing the calendar as a struggle, um, especially as it relates to Kwanzaa, because it, it's at least worked, you know, on one person, as me and my family. <laughs> when mm. It's like this idea that uh, putting it next to this other dominant holiday absolutely mm. made me question to the point where now uh, we emphasize Kwanzaa more. We make sure that we're, you know, engaging our family around those seven days after Christmas more than Christmas. And I never once, um, I've this, I'm learning this history for the first time as far as that calendar as a struggle, but it makes perfect sense. I'm not sure if I would have questioned uh, my relationship with this other holiday if it wasn't right there. So that's uh, incredible. I'm curious. What else have you seen in terms of the success of these initiatives based on the goals that the architects of this holiday and other holidays similarly laid out? Well, I think you're absolutely right. that The holidays are in many ways a way to organize and galvanize our, our community. Um, so, you know, the, the brilliance of, of, of Karanga is that, you know, to say, okay, we like you said, we don't want one day, we want seven days. But the first day is consequential because, you know, it represents umoja, unity. And it's about us, you know, coming together to understand who we are and our collective struggle. Uh, but it's also important that we lay out other days on the calendar to make our lives intentional. And so... Holiday makers were purposeful in creating the holidays in the first place. So, yes, Martin Luther King Jr. Day comes out of our collective recognition of a man who was part of our history and of our culture and who struggled and organized in a certain kind of way. And who really, you know, in many ways, people want to claim Martin Luther King, you know, as a universal kind of icon that spoke to you know, all people, uh, and it, you know, in many ways speaks to white people, but, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. is, you know, through and through a black freedom fighter, and we could never forget that, and we want to celebrate this man. It was not a mistake. It's not a mistake in all instances that we celebrate the life of a person who was assassinated, who was lost in that way, the following year of the assassination. So meaning that the first year that we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day, he was uh, assassinated April 4th, 1968. The first year was April 4th, 1969. So I know we focus on the federal holiday and the signing of that uh, in the 1980s with Ronald Reagan, but the grassroots aspect of our holidays is something that I love, right? That's one of the things that I I wanted to kind of hold up in the book is that it's the community that comes together that creates the holiday. It's not the federal government. It's not the signing. It's not even a lot of the celebs that that come along and embrace. But it's the community of 
folks who are ordinary, everyday people who decide to do this. One of the holidays that I do love, and this is to illustrate your question, is uh, Black Love Day. I just think that that's one of the most ingenious holidays ever created. February 13th, so we're going to take a position on the location of the holiday, like you said. We're going to put it before February 14th. We're going to call it Black Love Day. Yes, we're taking a position on Black romantic love, but that's not why Ayo Kendi Handy created that holiday. She created it because she had lost her son to gun violence in Washington, D.C., right? And so she thought that we have to, you know, expand our conception of love in the community to think about other kinds of ways that we can, you know, think about what does it mean to love one another? What does it mean to, to sort of stop the kind of behavior that we may be exhibiting? as a community. And yes, we're going to take a position on Black romantic love. That's important. We want to highlight that. But, you know, loving in the Black community, it, it means so much more. So, and, but, and she's grassroots, right? She's coming right out of Black D.C. She's coming right out of the Black consciousness movement. She used to be a Kwanzaa uh, organizer in D.C. So I think, I think for me, what holds these holidays together is their root, uh, the reason behind their creation and what they and how they speak to us as a community. And yes, I know this is a question I get all the time. I'm glad I'm doing this with you guys because I know you may ask me this question, but if I'm interviewing with white media, they really only want, want to know one question. Is Kwanzaa still popular? And they look at the numbers and say, well, it seems like it's, it's fading in importance. And they want me to speak to that. Now, I don't really uh, have a lot of data on that. You know, I'm not a social scientist. I'm not a, a quant person. So I don't have data on who celebrates it, where, how many. But I always say to them, I said, that's the least important thing about our holidays, that how popular they are. I mean, I, yes, I would lo- love to see more people, you know, embrace our holidays because I think they are really uh, revolutionary. Black Love Day or Kwanzaa. But I think the least important thing about them is their popularity, but more about what they were trying to do, the holiday makers and those who may have come to participate in them every year. Uh, but again, because they, it's only a subset of days on the on the long 365-day calendar, you know, there's just pockets and moments throughout the year to to talk about our issues, whereas, you know, understanding Black history you know, all year round, like you guys are, are doing, is much more important. You know, one thing that stands out to me, which I think you've named in a couple of different terms, but practicing self-determination and naming and defining ourselves through the creation of our own holidays, you know, because sometimes you have folks in our community that say, you know, hey, celebrating Kwanzaa, that's a, that's a made-up holiday, right? What, mm-hmm. <laughs> but what are other holidays, right? So it's, it's really fascinating to hear some of the backstory around this. Uh, so I know we have Juneteenth coming up. You've referenced it a couple of times. And, you know, you previously mentioned that our holidays start in the community. It doesn't really take federal action or celebrity endorsement if we want to New holiday, but recently Juneteenth was made a federal holiday. So, curious around uh, your thoughts about the history of Juneteenth and really, I guess, what it means for us now and what it could mean in the future. That's a very fascinating question. And uh, as a as a 
student of, of Black holidays, one of the things that I love and, and I kind of loathe is that our holidays kind of come and go. Juneteenth is a perfect example. Of course, created because of this, this effort to recognize the ending of slavery uh, and then the, the sort of unbeknownst aspect of that ending by a community in, in South in the southwest part of the country, uh, Texas, having folks still working and not knowing. And so we're going to take a position on that and really elevate that. But you know what's interesting? There could have been other holidays that took off that did not. We used to celebrate January 1st. So it's kind of fitting that you know Kwanzaa's last days on January 1st. But January 1st used to be Emancipation Day for a variety of reasons. One, because of the effect uh, of the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation was in September of 1862, but it went into effect January 1, 1863. There are other things that happened on January 1st throughout our history that became an Emancipation Day. That could have been that Juneteenth holiday, but it wasn't, right? You know, we've had uh, holidays associated with Nat Turner and Crispus Attucks and all kinds of other figures. They never really kind of took off. But Juneteenth did, and it and it takes off uh, right after 1875, and it spreads in the South probably for the next decade or two, 1870s, 1880s. Then it, it kind of goes away for a while, almost disappears, only to uh, come up again when a lot of Black Southerners begin to migrate North and West, and of course took everything with them, took their culture with them, and it starts to pop up and places like Chicago and New York. It's all over the country. I hear that. I hear that. You know, this holiday being recognized now on a different scale, which I think is helpful. It, it's recognized in a lot of states uh, in the 20th century. But then it get, and it's a national Juneteenth organization. It's real big for a long time. And then it falls off again. And it really goes dormant until George Floyd the murder of George Floyd. End of May, near Memorial Day, the death of George Floyd. Then you have Juneteenth coming up. You also had uh, commemorations around the Tulsa riot that occurred in 1921. So you have that as well. And that, that has some momentum, just the whole Black Wall Street commemorations and recognitions. But then you have a president and former President Donald Trump really trying to do something that he had no business doing. It backfired on him. So he's going to go down and make a speech, or he had planned to make a speech on Juneteenth. This was 2020. And the community, you know, they were up in arms. So he reluctantly, I think he shifted the day. But then he's, he, you know, in his arrogance, he says, well, I'm the one who made Juneteenth a, a famous holiday and, and, and recognizable because of my actions. But Juneteenth had been popular for years. It just ebbed and flowed, given the history and given what was going on in the United States. So the, the murder of George Floyd did put Juneteenth, it took it to another level. And so now we have a new kind of recognition around it. The question I have is, or the wonder I have is, will it just ebb again at some point? And 
and it, it may go dormant. I mean, we this may be after all of us are dead. It may just be forgotten once again some 30, 40, 50 years later, right? So I, I just, we just can never sustain them because we need white folk at some level to help us keep them propped up. And we need white, you know, proclamations. We need white policy. We need white law. Sometimes we need white money to keep these things going. Uh, and I talk about this in one of the chapters in, in the Kwanzaa book about uh, the appropriation and the commercialization of Kwanzaa. Because a lot of the co- companies that were promoting it, saying happy Kwanzaa every year, were, you know, your big corporations. But, you know, did did that intervention make Kwanzaa popular in the 1980s and 1990s? A lot of people would say, well, yeah, you know, when Avon and McDonald's started embracing it, the more people knew about Kwanzaa. That may not be true for you, Jay, or me, because we were introduced to it through the community and through the family, but maybe some other Black folks, they heard about it for the first time because a a corporation uh, celebrated it. So I I have this kind of, you know, I go back and forth with our holidays because I know that if it's left up to us, we'll always have it and we'll have it in our our community confines and our spaces and our families. And to me, for me, that's good enough. But I know that people want a larger recognition for our holidays, but it may come at a cost. And I, I believe the same thing, to your point. Yeah, we'll see how much that sustains. But I like to think that, you know, it can revive something and more people to, to keep it going in ways regardless of what the dominant society is saying we should or should not care about. So I like this idea of us taking control of creating those uh, cultural celebrations that that we can use to, to socialize ourselves in, in very intentional ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I always have to say to myself, we always have to work with very little, but it's something that we can build on. And there are, it's always a a newer generation and younger generation coming along and just just to kind of add to it, which I just love. So I just love Black Holidays to raise our consciousness and love, love what's coming next. Like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, A people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel that's important too. I mean, here you are at the end of a podcast about Black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take matters into our own hands. And you make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people give about five or 10 bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tarek Alani, Leslie Taylor Grover, Brooke Brown, Siobhan Chapman, Albany Jones, Brianna Lambach, Garciella Melotesi, 
Zane Murdoch, Tasha Taylor, and Darren Wallace. Producing the podcast, we have Sydney Smith and Sasha Kai Parker, who also edits the show. And Black History Year's executive producer is Julian Walker. And I'm Jay from Push Black. Peace.